When we started this look at Matthew, we, we said that the, the book was purposely structured, and that keeping that structure in mind is going to be really helpful for interpreting what's going on. So if you do have a journal with you, you, you might want to note down that, that this section that we are in can be thought of as, as the kingdom coming with authority. So previously, you'll remember we had the Sermon on the Mount, that section of the discourse where Jesus effectively announces the kingdom, and then we get this more narrative section where specific miracles are, are grouped together here to show how the kingdom comes with authority. And we said a few weeks ago that the miracles and, and how Jesus acts, they, they've been linked together to tell us something about him and something about the kingdom. And so far in this series, we have seen Jesus' authority over sickness, over nature, over spiritual matters. And now we, this, this morning, we get another grouping of miracles. And so as we dive into the text, the, the questions that we should be asking ourselves and the questions that you can note down in your journals if you have them there are, what do these miracles show us about the kingdom coming and about Jesus' authority? And then what does that mean for us today? Okay, so, so what is Matthew trying to get across here about Jesus and about the kingdom and how he's recorded these miracles? And then how should we apply that to our lives today? Let, let's dive right in. Look with me to the first section, verses 18 to 26. Here we get an account of a woman being healed from a, a long-term sickness and then a girl being raised from the dead. And we should note that that's probably a familiar story to us, but there's a couple of differences in Matthew's account to what we find in Mark or in Luke. Firstly, Matthew spends just a fraction of the time on it. It's, it's just the important facts that we get here. And so if we were to read Mark or, or Luke's version, then I would be talking here about, about the public nature of the healing of the woman to, to restore her to society or the private raising of the girl from the dead so that, that she wouldn't get a, a social stigma. But here, instead of looking at the two individuals healed, this, this sharp staccato story points us to the authority of Jesus and what he has over sickness and over death. So if you remember last week, Matthew has just been explaining, he's finished explaining that, that Jesus gives a different practice of fasting to his disciples. And in case anyone's wondering, how, how can he do this? How can he have the authority? We get this miracle where Jesus is framed as having authority even over death. The other thing to, to note is that verse 18 says that the girl has already died. In, in the other accounts, in Mark and Luke, the, the girl is just gravely sick at the start. And that gives those accounts a, a sense of, of drama and, and urgency. But here, the emphasis is placed on the problem of death right up front. And that's to show Jesus as completely powerful. Matthew is trying to keep the spotlight on Jesus as the king. And that plays out in the details as well. Look at the, what the synagogue leader does and, and, and circle these words. He comes and he kneels and he says. So, so, so he comes. He, he doesn't summon Jesus like, like a leader at the time would have. Instead, he comes showing Jesus to be of more importance than him. And, and then he kneels, again, showing that he is the subordinate. And then he says, he, he, he petitions, he, he begs. 
He sees that Jesus has authority, that Jesus can solve this problem of death, and so he pleads with him to come and to act. Come and put your hand on her. Do you remember from before when we said from the leper when he's healed that we said the uncleanness that sin spreads? But here the leader has a sense that that rather that uncleanness spread to Jesus, that he can pass on life. Matthew highlights the, the religious leader's actions, but also note his position as a religious leader. We don't get his name here. He's always the religious leader. And that's in order to present Jesus as a type of king with authority, but also as a type of priest, someone who can mediate between God and man and bring about life. And we see that as well in verse 21 and 22, where where the woman knows that just touching the cloak is all that she needs. That Jesus is such a beacon of power and of holiness that just being close to him is all that she needs to overcome this darkness that has been affecting her. Jesus is portrayed as the one to, to hope in who has some kind of spiritual weight, both king and priest, so having authority that exceeds even both realms. So you can see that everything in this first story points to Jesus's authority. It shows the leaders of this world placing themselves under him and the people petitioning him to come and stand before God on their account. And so if you're taking notes and and thinking about what Matthew is trying to communicate to us here about Jesus and about the kingdom, you can note down beside this first section that Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is mighty to save, that the kingdom has come in power. Now, there's, there's lots more that could be said about these miracles on their own, but, but this morning we're trying to get a, a bigger picture of what Matthew is, is saying to us and why he groups these miracles like he does. So let's look at the next one now, verse, verse 27. As Jesus went from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. Okay, so, so there's a phrase to underline in your Bibles, son of David. Now, for us, that might not mean much, but to the original audience, that is a clear bell just ringing out. Son of David is the title that points to the Messiah, the promised king of Israel, who God is going to send to bring the people back into right relationship with him. Here we have two blind men that see more clearly than, than anyone else that Jesus is the Messiah. And not only that, but but they trust in Jesus that he is able to open the eyes of the blind. Now, that's something that's prophesied in Isaiah about the Messiah, and it's also something that at the time was was so closely linked to the Messiah coming that it would authenticate his identity. And so although we get the same imagery about Jesus being a king here, Matthew has, has layered something onto this part with these big, overt references to the Messiah. Not just that Jesus is some political ruler that's going to change their society, but that he is the promised king to come who's going to change everything. The blind men believed. They had faith like the leader and the woman before them. 
which served to identify them with Jesus, and so they were healed. Their faith marked them as part of the kingdom, and then Jesus confirms that with this outward healing. But again, if you're reading these stories, Matthew doesn't let us just rest there. Look at verse 32. While they were going out, so think of the scene. While the blind men are going out, another person comes in and enters the scene. And just continuing that short, punchy style, this demon-possessed man is immediately healed. And so although if you think about it, that in itself is, is pretty awesome. The way that Matthew recounts it clearly points to the expectation of the Messiah to have the authority to do this. The ability to drive out demons is, as great as that is, seems to be a sort of a footnote that points to the greater reality that Jesus is the one that God has sent to bring his kingdom to this world. That Jesus is the messianic king that God's people have been waiting for. So if you remember our, our first question, what is Matthew trying to get across here? We have these two sections of miracles presenting Jesus as king, as having authority, and as being the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. But there's something else I, I want to note as well here. Look with me at, at verse 26. News of this spread through all that region. Okay, so underline or, or circle that or, or highlight it in some way because it's going to give us some structure here. And now look with me again to, to verse 31 and, and mark or, or highlight this in, in the same way. They went out and spread the news about him all over that region. What we have here is, is Matthew dropping two pebbles into a pond. And he sees that the ripples of what Jesus is doing is spreading throughout the land. Now later in, in chapter 11, John sends disciples to Jesus and to ask him, are you the one that we are waiting for or, or do we have to wait for another? And Jesus replies to him, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. In that statement there, Jesus is, is essentially summarizing all the Old Testament prophecies about him that people are going to immediately connect to the Messiah. And these are the same miracles or the same signs that, G, that Matthew has grouped together for us. So we have here the rumors. They're not spreading because some people just got better. The stories are traveling because of what they point to. The people are seeing Jesus act like the Savior, and they're passing the word out to all that they see. Could this be the time? Could it be happening to us now? And so the ripples are going out like signal fires, like, like a call to arms that the people hear, and, and their ears pick up. They hear an echo of Eden on the wind. Matthew is showing us that the reaction of God's people to his presence among them, it's a light so bright that even the blind can see it. And all of this is summarized and summed up in verse 33, where the crowd in its amazement says, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Now, that phrase might be Matthew referring to 
to all the miracles that he's listed just so far, or, or just the recent ones, or, or even maybe the scale or the intensity of what Jesus has done. But it serves to show the crowds, the, the, the people, as looking to Jesus with awe and wonder in faith. We have the kingdom coming, Jesus showing his power and authority, and then the people react with amazement and joy as the news spreads. The king has come. But that's not the end, is it? Verse 34 gives us another reaction. But the Pharisees said, and and, and so just note there that that's immediately giving us a, a contrast with the people, what's come before. They've said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Christoph's mentioned a few times in this series has challenged us to think about who Jesus is. But part of what Matthew is trying to draw out here is not just an understanding of the identity of Jesus, but also getting us to consider how we react to that identity. And so we have Jesus presented as the, as the prophesied Messiah, the, the king who comes with authority to establish his kingdom. And we have some people reacting by submitting to the king, others in joyous amazement, others by going telling others about what is happening. And then finally we end on almost a, a sour note as the Pharisees react by just rejecting Jesus, by portraying the hope of the world as an instrument of its condemnation. They notice they don't doubt his power. They question his goodness. Can you see how Matthew has has woven the reactions of the people to the kingdom into this narrative section? The, The main point is that Jesus is the promised king, but the refrain seems to be presenting the subjects of the kingdom in a way that is gonna make us as the reader consider their reactions and what those reactions might mean for them. Okay, so I know you're a smart bunch. You can, you can look at the passage and see these themes. But, but here is where the rubber meets the road. Here is where the subplot of people's reactions becomes important because it almost forces us to think, how do we react? What does all this mean for us today. I'm going to make just a, a couple of brief points, but, but you can expand upon them in your discipleship groups or tea and coffee after, or, or even just take these questions into your own personal da- daily readings. So the first thing that should impact us today is that we see that there is hope for spiritually dead people. Here we see that Jesus comes for the blind, the outcast, the possessed, the dead. And as he comes, he brings life. He brings restoration. He brings a way to be united with God and find the satisfaction of our souls. Our world tells us to to hope in our careers as if the synagogue leader's position was any help in his hour of need. Or maybe they tell us to to hope in our possessions as if the mute man's stuff stopped the demon taking hold of him. But seeing Jesus as king says that even when we have made all those mistakes, 
no matter what our addiction or our pain or our guilt or our shame is, Jesus is willing to wash us clean. And that means that there is hope for the lost, for our friends and family members who, who don't know Christ. No one is beyond the power of our King. It also means that we are to live in response to that reality. The primary response to Jesus that Matthew is trying to get at here is faith. Think of the leader. He has faith that Jesus can overcome death. The blind men had had faith to identify Jesus as Messiah, to follow him, to ask for mercy, to believe that Jesus could heal him. The people who brought the demon-possessed man had faith that Jesus' authority could overcome this demon. Those who shared the news had faith that this was something noteworthy and different. Responding in faith is the mark of all these people. The Northern Irish Church in general has been plagued by cultural Christianity, by a tendency that we have to to come to church and engage for, for social rather than religious reasons. And so we have emphasized being good living. We've painted a veneer of Christianity on generations of people who all look great, but who haven't seen faith grow in their hearts. Oh, we've written a new set of Ten Commandments that are such a burden to us that the Christian experience feels more like self-denial than joyous living. And that wider environment can, can rub off on us. How easy for, is it for us as parents to prioritize things like education over character formation? We say that church is the most important thing, but we let our kids off coming to church because it's exam time. Well, we're showing them that, that it's not the most important thing. Well, what about us married people? How easy for, for us is it to prioritize entertainment over deeper connection with our spouse. We can carve out time for a movie night, but, but not to pray with one another. Or for singles out there, how tempting is it to push for connection or career over holiness? And look, guys, you know me, I love you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty because I'm guilty of all of this. That's why I'm bringing it up here. I've been sitting with this passage all week, just being convicted by it. I can all too easily respond to the kingdom with outward morality that's just superficial. It's all too easy to get distracted, to just go with the flow of this world. But seeing Jesus as king invites us to do the hard work of pursuing faith, of taking a stand and saying, this is who I am. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How will you respond to Jesus coming? This week, really ask yourself, what are you doing to cultivate your faith? Are all your efforts going into growing your career or your followers or your body? 
What are you doing to grow your faith? What are you doing to conform your life to the Lordship of Jesus? Why not take some time this week by yourself with a friend or with your spouse and ask that question, what am I doing? What could I do? But don't do that in a spirit of of condemnation. Do it out of a, a joyous desire to get to know God because family, wherever we are in our faith, we have the opportunity to walk closer with Christ, to get to know more of true life. The King has come. Let your life be a faithful response to that. Let us enjoy the kingdom together. One of the ways that we are built up in faith is by singing together. And we're going to do that in a minute, but as the band come back up, remember that God has given us our church family to bring us into maturity. There is something about lifting our voices as a family that makes us consider God and what he has done. And in meditating upon that, upon him, that our faith is stirred up. And so as you sing out, sing loud, knowing that you're building one another up and reminding one another that the king has come. So if you're able, let's, let's stand, let's join our voices proclaiming the coming of the kingdom and knowing that through faith we are united to Christ and that his spirit is with us. Let's sing together.